Welcome to the Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I am your host, Felicia Z of Athene Law, and my guest today is Chris Knasser from Norton Rose Fulbright, talking to us today about emergency behavioral health issues. Chris, we've had the chance to meet before, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and really the kind of work that you've been doing in this very important area. Thank you for having me, Felicia, and I'm happy to be here. I'm a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright. I've been doing litigation in a number of spaces for about a decade now. They're all complex, but it it varies from commercial litigation through oil and gas. But I've always had a large part of my practice that has been healthcare litigation. And as a part of that, I've had to also advise my healthcare clients on complicated issues and across sort of all the areas that I've been advising on or litigating in mental health seems to continually be the most complex and in a in a in sort of a real world sense where the stakes are the highest someone can lose a lawsuit and maybe pay money but there's actually people's safety liberty and all kinds of other issues that are always coming to a head when we're talking about mental health. And it's a it's a big problem that is just can't be described as any other way other than complex and difficult. Last year, we did a podcast with Congressman Raul Ruiz, who talked about there being a second pandemic, a behavioral health pandemic on the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic. How are you seeing that in your practice? So there has certainly been a steady increase in what what we call the mental health crisis for decades now. But by terms of volume and complexity, at least in my experience with my clients, there has been a significant uptick in not only the prevalence of mental health crisis, just the raw numbers, But of course, since COVID started, resources, both in the communities that that are there to provide assistance and to walk through the process and dealing with people who are in mental crisis are also taxed at the moment. So it has certainly become a crisis on top of a crisis, so to speak. And we see this really coming to a head in the emergency department of hospitals. Would you agree? Absolutely. Because in California, I know we're seeing this. I think about a lot in terms of input and output, right? For the input, you have more patients coming in, maybe because of the issues with what I think of as behavioral health primary care and the shortages thereof. But then you have output issues where it's difficult to, you know, stabilize and discharge or transfer those patients. We're seeing a lot of that in California. How does that compare to your experience in Texas? I think you could say that's happening across the country, but it is certainly an issue in Texas, very similar to what you've described on sort of both sides of what we see coming, for lack of a better term, to the emergency department here in Texas. Now, now in California, we have both voluntary and involuntary patients presenting at the emergency department. Is that, is that how it works in, in Texas as well? Are, are you getting a lot of folks being brought by law enforcement? We we are. I'll, I'll just say that from my perspective, 
referring to individuals who come to the ED on their own, not by way of a peace officer. You could refer to that as being involuntary and not to get too specific into the weeds on the laws in Texas, but that involuntary has a specific meaning in the context of a licensed mental health facility. And a general hospital's ED is a little bit different. So I try not to overuse that term, but for the concept of individuals who come on their own voluntarily seeking treatment or seeking treatment for a loved one, we see that, but we are also seeing a massive influx of, for lack of a better term, what we'll call involuntary, where a peace officer or someone in law enforcement is bringing someone who is in mental crisis to the emergency department for one or another reason. So you talk about a local mental health facility and distinguish it from a general acute care hospital with an emergency department. Now, I think a lot of lay people think that if you have any kind of emergency, you should just go to your closest emergency room. But what's, what's the distinction between those different types of facilities? Sure. And when we're talking about a, a lay person seeking treatment, there's there's not really a reason for a distinction. If there isn't an emergency, and it doesn't matter if it is a physical medicine emergency or a mental health emergency, uh, it is common practice. And I, I wouldn't say it's unreasonable or wrong to take someone to an emergency department. That might not be the ultimate appropriate level of care. And ED is going to assess and stabilize and if necessary, transport to the, the higher level of care. Things become more complicated, however, when a law enforcement officer has detained someone and brought them to an emergency department because our laws have a specific procedure for where a, a detainment can occur and the processes that are legally required once that starts. And if they are brought to an emergency department when they have nothing other than a mental health crisis. It causes ambiguities in how to handle that situation once somebody is in the emergency department. I hope that makes sense. Well, I'd love to learn more about those ambiguities, and then I have another follow-up question. Sure. So to unpack it as concisely as, as I possibly can, in order for a peace officer without any type of warrant or legal process other than being a peace officer to detain someone because they're believed to be a danger to themselves or others in one of these situations. The Texas Mental Health Code assigns where they should be transported to, and the first place that they should be transported to is the nearest appropriate inpatient mental health facility, so not an ED. And then from there, there is a tier of additional places that these individuals should be taken if an inpatient mental health facility is not available. Where things become unclear is when there's not an inpatient mental health facility available, or for one reason or another, a peace officer just takes them directly to the emergency department because we fall out of the process that is at least contemplated under our mental health laws in Texas. And, and it's a very similar structure in California as well, where there's really supposed to be a transport by law enforcement or other public officials to a designated facility. And there's a lot of confusion in terms of what that means, but it's intended to be a designated facility that can 
actually stabilize and treat the behavioral health crisis. Um, and there's become increased ambiguity as counties are asserting that basically any emergency department is a designated facility, regardless of whether or not they've done any designation. <laughs> so that's a little tricky. But one thing I found interesting is as we talk, you've been using the term detainment. Mm-hmm. In California, we talk about taking individuals under custody. And in my mind, those are words that you usually hear in criminal law. You don't really hear that in, in civil law very much. And, and I was curious whether you had any thoughts about why that might be. Um, that's, that's a really good question that I haven't been asked before. What, what I will note is that we also use the term protective custody. Detainment is used both in our mental health laws and, and then also as a as a more general term to talk about when someone's liberty for a certain period of time is being taken away. And to get back to answering your question, I think that's probably why, even though if someone truly is in need of court-ordered mental health services, in Texas and most jurisdictions, that's a civil proceeding. But the concept of a of a law enforcement peace officer, someone who who has the authority of law to apprehend someone, use force against them up until a court orders them against their will to undergo court-ordered treatment. It has a similarity to what we see in the criminal process, even though we're trying to destigmatize the concept of getting someone help when they're a danger to themselves or others. Now, that's sort of similar to what I thought. I always think of it as the state acting as parents patrie. Exactly. And yeah, and, but but that goes back to what are the, I often think about the sort of checks and balances mm-hmm. behind making that determination. The idea behind taking an individual civil liberties is for the purpose of actually treating the patient. And that's where, I, personally, I, I find it a little challenging when then they are being brought to facilities that don't have the capacity to treat acute or crisis level behavioral health conditions. Right, and that's that's sort of where we started. We can have academic discussions about what our various mental health laws are in d- different jurisdictions and what actually happens in the real world. But overwhelmingly so, if there was infinite amount of resources, if there was an infinite amount of facilities that are the actually appropriate facility with an unlimited amount of beds, you and I probably would not be having this conversation. So you have civil liberties process that we want to protect for purposes of giving them the right care. Where we see the most complexity is not so much those processes and people respecting those processes. It's when the lack of resources cause a friction in getting someone the right level of care while respecting those rights. Let's move into some of those examples because I come from a public health background. So if we want to talk about, you know, setting up helplines or providing more primary care through FQHCs, those are very much sort of the the public health type of, of ways to address this or even partnerships between private hospitals and counties because counties often have the responsibility to pay for behavioral health care in order to maximize any kind of Medicaid funding there can be. But you and I have both had experiences in litigation around these crisis behavioral health patients in the emergency department. 
I'm curious about, you know, sort of the context where you often find yourself litigating. Yes. I, I wouldn't say litigating. I've, I've litigated when things go wrong in these situations where I find the issues you just described sort of coming up and me having to advocate is situations where there's not a clear path for a court to make a decision on what to do about how to get the person to the correct level of care. So let me sort of lay that out in sort of real world terms. We often frequently see a situation where a person was, we'll use that word again, detained. They're taken to the emergency department because resources are thin and the peace officer either has no better option or that's the easier option. The individual is stabilized, but that takes, let's say, three days, either because of comorbidities or, or something else. But in the process, we know we need to elevate to a higher level of care. Finding a bed is going to take some time. And so the example I'm trying to illustrate for you is, is assume that it takes more than 48 hours to find a bed that is available. A court might look at that and say, but the person has already been detained for 48 hours. Most reasonable folks are going to say, but there's already an inpatient bed available where the person was supposed to go in the first place, and we need to get them there. But because the specific process contemplated under our mental health laws was not followed, courts need assistance on figuring out what is the best option to do in that situation to respect the liberties of the individual, to make sure that there's been compliance with the law, but at the same time, reach the best result under the circumstances. That's where I tend to be advocating. That's a primary example of where I'm advocating for the right path forward. That, that is really good work that you're doing. And it's interesting when I say we, as a firm, have litigated one of the things we've looked at is particularly in the context of Medicaid patients, where a hospital has an emergency department but is not licensed for acute psychiatric services, those hospitals can never admit those patients. So right. even if the patient is stabilized within a few days, the hospital can never admit them. So pretty much the maximum amount they'll get paid for an emergency department visit is $75. But as they wait for a bed, they could end up housing that individual for another two weeks. And so really trying to figure out how do we motivate the folks who are responsible for care management and identifying placement and providing behavioral health services to actually ensure that there's timely service being provided. That it can be a whole maze out here in California, especially like Texas, there are big swaths of rural area where there may just not be behavioral health services, and that definitely complicates things for them. It does. And how I sort of see that is, is that's best case and scenario in a lot of these, these instances where I'm trying to advocate for the, the, the right path forward, because there's at least some funding to get the individual out of the ED into some higher level of care. Overwhelmingly so, we're seeing situations where there is no funding for the patient, and that's what's causing the complication in securing a bed at a facility that is most appropriate. Yeah, actually, maybe you, were, you interpreted my remarks as overly optimistic. In California, we uh, for Medicaid, we have separate behavioral health plans that okay. are separate and apart from our physical health plans. 
but the physical health plans never pay for acute level behavioral health care. So they just pay for that emergency visit and then they're sort of done with it, even if the patient requires acute level behavioral health care. And then the mental health plans won't pay for anything until they're actually admitted. And some of them will, but most of them will refuse. But as long as they never make a placement for the, that individual, their payment obligation never gets triggered. And so there's actually a financial disincentive in the system to ensure that the patient gets access to the level of care that they actually need. So that can be incredibly frustrating. <laughs> Anytime that you introduce funding, what is already complicated becomes much, much more complicated. Yes, but that's why hopefully both of us will continue to be employed. You know, I have one last question. And, you know, we've been talking for some time, but you've talked a couple of times about stabilization. And I think all the hospitals with emergency departments have a really good sense of what stabilization means with respect to physical health care, um, if that's really what they specialize in. But I'm kind of curious if you perceive there being any differences in what stabilization means when you have a crisis behavioral health condition? So Felicia, another difficult question. Um, the, the reason why it's difficult is because myself as an attorney it is trying to interpret that in terms of the law. And much like the Texas Mental Health Code addresses the mental health crisis in the first place as being a particular standard, but that doesn't necessarily equate to what it means in the medical community. And trying to piece those two together is difficult, especially considering when there, there are so many different variants in behavioral health and mental health that may lead, lead a provider to determine that, that someone is not stable from a, from a behavioral or mental health perspective. What I've seen is a doctor in their medical judgment is usually looking at whether if a discharge were to occur, and, and I'm talking about a physician, usually not my hospital, but if the physician determines that if they, they leave, they're going to cause injury to themselves or others because of the behavioral or mental health crisis that they're experiencing, that they are not stable at that point. And I think I, in situations I've seen, this, this can be really difficult because sometimes folks may be in different levels of crisis throughout a day. Right. So somebody could be really a danger to themselves for an hour a day, but fairly stable for another 23 hours a day or somewhere in between. And so it, it, I think in terms of figuring out when they are stable, like completely stable for discharge, for example, is really difficult to ascertain. But then in addition to that, then you have transfer of a patient with a behavioral health condition is very different than transferring a patient who might be bleeding out, right? Being able to move the person it involves different levels of, of care. Absolutely. And, and the stakes are sort of higher on both sides, whether someone's brought in by law enforcement or a, or a family member because of a, a mental or behavioral health crisis they're probably getting a history on what has occurred. And it's hard to separate that from maybe what the patient is telling you is going on. And a lot of this requires piecing those things together. And the same is gonna be true if 
a physician determines that the individual is an immediate danger to themselves or others and, and is not comfortable discharging, they're going to have to articulate that to a court because they can't just transfer them like a patient who needs a higher level of care for a, a general medical issue. And so they're having to sparse all that out and defend themselves at the same time that what they are trying to ascertain from a patient isn't always so objective. They can't look at tests or a lab reading and say, in fact, this person is having this cardiac issue or some other issue. They, they've got a lot of data points and they're having to make their best call in the circumstances. So very, very difficult. Which brings me to another scary thought, and I might be going a little all over the place, but one of the other places where we just try to take physical health processes or definitions and apply them to behavioral health that doesn't make a lot of sense is usually for a facility transfer, you'll use an ambulance. And an ambulance rig is set up for a physical health transfer, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe really be an upsetting place for behavioral health patients. So for me, that's one of the areas where it just doesn't make sense to apply physical health rules to behavioral health. Are there any particular things that you get upset about where the standard rule is really written for physical health and then is applied to behavioral health in a way that just may or may not make sense? That issue hasn't come up as much. And I think because once you get into the sort of the processes in our mental health laws that I've talked about, we are talking about a, a circumstance in which the individual is thought to be or has been examined and determined to be a danger to themselves or others. Though it's a high threshold, it it, it takes some of the, the question out of it. When someone is being transferred, though, provided that, that the rules are followed, it's pretty clear that they're going to be transferred by a peace officer. And so I haven't had an encounter in which we're talking about either the equipment or the circumstance in which the transfer occurs, other than to say a, a judge has in fact issued a warrant and a mental health trained peace officer is going to cause the transport. The only the only exception to that is, is there can be comorbidities. Someone could be suffering from a gunshot wound and be suicidal. They should in that circumstance, they should be stabilized at the ED for the general medical condition. But though they may be stable, they still may need to be transported in an in ambulance uh, once they get transferred to a higher level of care for their mental or behavioral health issue. And we've seen circumstances in, in which you have an ambulance and a peace officer working in concert to, to cause that transfer. I'll be honest, I'm completely floored. I've heard of behavioral county behavioral health workers transporting patients in their own personal vehicles. And I have heard of interfacility transfers being done by ambulance, but much less common in California is that the peace officer will come back to the hospital to bring that individual to the behavioral health facility. So, so that that's one where Texas got a point on, on California. I, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go so far as much as I love Texas. I, I wouldn't go I wouldn't go that far. It is by no means automatic. We are talking about a circumstance in which the general hospital has gone through the process of securing a bed for the individual who has been left there by by a peace officer, has secured a bed at a higher level of care, given what treatment they can. And then after that bed is secured, they've petitioned a court to issue an order that requires a peace officer to come get them and to do that transfer. 
and I could talk for about three hours about how complicated uh, the ins and outs of getting to that point where you have a magic piece of paper requiring that transfer to occur. So it's it's not easy and it's not automatic. So so don't give too many points to Texas too quickly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for providing your expertise today. I've been very educational for me, and I've really just enjoyed the exchange of ideas. Thank you to all the audience for listening to this episode of Voices in Health Law. This is Felicia Zia with Theme Law, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. The Health Law section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health.